thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. This morning's Bible reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. And I'm reading from the New International Version. Matthias chosen to replace Judas. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Would you join with me in prayer as I begin? Father God, we thank you for this account in Acts that, um, that gives us hope, Lord, that see, lets us see how you are at work in this world. And Father, invites us to be shaped and changed uh, and, and gives us encouragement. Father, I pray tonight that we will be open to being changed and challenged by your Holy Spirit as we engage in this passage tonight. Amen. Well, when something new is on the horizon, a mixture of nerves and excitement can leave us a little underprepared. In 1999, on a gap year before I went to university, a friend of mine and I visited South Africa. And on this trip, we were very keen to climb Table Mountain. Now, Table Mountain is this flat-topped mountain that sits right on the kind of doorstep of Cape Town in South Africa. It is only 1,085 meters high, so it's not terribly challenging as mountains go, but it's a good day's walk. Well, I thought so anyway. The year previously, my mate's brother had tried to climb this in flip-flops, 
or thongs, which is not a good plan. And our hostel, where we were staying, had advised us to get up early and make sure that we weren't climbing Table Mountain in the heat of the day. We were advised to be prepared. I am Captain Prepared. I wasn't going to make that mistake. The morning of, we woke up a little later than perhaps we had planned, and we didn't really have anything to carry any water in. But we were excited not to miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity of climbing Table Mountain. So we thought, we'll get water on the way, and sunscreen, and a map. And after not passing any shops on the way to the mountain, the foot of the mountain, we kind of decided, well, it doesn't look that far, and apparently it's only meant to take 90 minutes, so we'll just give it a go. To cut a long story short, it took three and a half hours. We had a perilous encounter with some loose gravel and a sheer cliff face, and both of us were suffering from significant dehydration due to physical exertion in 30-degree heat. Upon arrival at the top of Table Mountain, we were greeted by this simple sign that said, this is not an easy way down. We were not prepared. In our excitement, we forgot all of the advice that we had been given just a day before. And here in this section of Acts, I think we could be in danger of doing the same. I mean, I was a little grumpy when Mark asked me to preach on this passage. I mean, inside, of course, I didn't let him see that. (laughs) But we've just seen Jesus ascend into heaven in in the section before. And do you know what comes next? Do you know what comes after this section? Pentecost, tongues of fire, and the Holy Spirit. This is the Mount Kilimanjaro of Bible passages, let alone Table Mountain. But in this section, the disciples are taking the first steps of carrying out this mission that Jesus has set them on without Jesus being physically present. And they're trying to work out what to do now when their team of 11 apostles should perhaps be 12. So we have a prayer meeting, and we have some MA15 plus fertilizer gore, and the result of a 50-50 lottery. Is this exciting? Is this just the preamble before the good stuff happens? And does this passage actually have much to teach us? Well, I believe the answer is yes, no, and yes. But more simply, I believe that this passage gives us some direction for how to cope with new challenges in life, how to face new things, how to face new challenges, whether they are exciting, like climbing a mountain, or whether they are terrifying, like surgery or unemployment or broken relationships. This is practical rhythm of life stuff, yes. But this is exciting, good and beautiful rhythm of full life stuff. But my question for us all now, 
to answer in our hearts is do we want to be better equipped to face new things? If you're keen, there are three responses that I believe this passage kind of teases out for us that can help us. The first is something to do. The second is something to remember. And the third is something to recognize. Now, there are clearly more than three things in this passage, but I'm told that if you present three points in a sermon, there's some chance that people will remember one. So first up, something to do when you're facing something new, which helpfully rhymes, so maybe you'll remember that one. This passage obviously follows on from the context that Mark was speaking about last week. The disciples, uh, the apostles, have just seen Jesus ascend into the clouds and perhaps understandably needed a bit of a jostle from two angels to kick them into action. Now the apostles are now making this easy day's walk back from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. But imagine what they're feeling. Imagine what they're feeling in this moment. I think we often slip into thinking that the apostles were in some way superhuman and that Jesus returning from the dead and spending 40 days with them and then disappearing into the clouds would somehow totally unfaze them. But try and imagine the feeling. I think the closest that we get is perhaps if we've ever seen someone perform an unexplainable, incredible illusion. Or maybe we've seen a miracle happen. Your mind goes into overdrive. You feel a little bit unsettled. What just happened? And you start to analyze everything. And despite clear instructions that Jesus has given these apostles, I think alongside this sense of nervousness, I reckon the apostles were probably thinking, yeah, but what on earth do we actually do now? But faced with this uncertainty, with fear perhaps, the questioning, the apostles choose to do something. As Mark urged us to recognize last week, the apostles choose to do something. And they choose to join together and to pray constantly. They delight to dwell together in prayer. Now, seemingly, almost every time I preach, I find myself speaking about prayer as something that we can do that will help us to live this full life that God is inviting us into, this good and beautiful life. But what I'm keen for us to understand is that there is a reason why this appears in the Bible so frequently, and that it is not just my hobby horse, although it is my hobby horse. And that is because prayer is like oxygen. It's essential for living. When we breathe, our lungs are filled with air. Oxygen passes into our bloodstream and it gets pumped around our bodies and we live. By breathing, 
We are declaring our dependence upon oxygen for life. And without it, we die. Now, we obviously don't die immediately when we stop praying. This is an illustration. But the version of life, actual, full, true, good, beautiful life that God is calling us into requires our declaration of dependence upon God at all times. We are dependent upon God to lead us into living well. And this is not just because oxygen needs us to feel validated, but because without it, we slowly begin to suffocate this good and beautiful life that God is calling us into, the mission to invite everyone everywhere to follow Jesus. And when these early believers, both male and female, joined together constantly in prayer, They were together recognizing and encouraging one another to recognize that they were dependent upon oxygen for life, that they were dependent on the guidance, transformation, and peace that a conversational relationship with our Heavenly Father brings to their life. To be united, particularly when facing new situations. And they declared their desire that no one in the group would suffocate the life that God was calling them into. I love this part of this passage. I love that we see here a concern for each other that they would actually live. They would truly live. I want to be part of a community like that. This is the do that I want to engage in when we all are facing new situations. Secondly, this passage invites us to remember something that will help us to face this life and all that it might seek to throw at us. As Peter stands up amongst this early church of 120, he highlights the actions and events concerning the life of Judas Iscariot, the 12th apostle. But he highlights that these actions fulfill scripture. Luke speaks about the fulfillment of scripture 25 times between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And we don't have time today for an in-depth exploration of all that this means. But I'd love to draw your attention to verse 20, where Peter refers to Psalm 69 and to Psalm 109. And in summary, these psalms speak of what happens to those who are enemies of God. They ultimately suffer judgment. And the words in verse 20 about there being no one to dwell in his place, which are taken from Psalm 69, are another way of saying death. And we see death pretty clearly depicted in Judas's gut spilling, perhaps too clearly. But another part of the judgment comes in Judas's replacement amongst the 12 apostles. Judas has ultimately chosen 
a field over the kingdom of God. He's chosen his own kingdom. And he has chosen to reject Jesus rather than to invite others to know him. And Psalm 109 provides Peter with guidance about the reappointment of a leader. What to do when a former leader is found guilty of being an enemy of God and that leader dies. And these words used in the context of Acts reveal how Judas' replacement almost confirms his exclusion from God's kingdom. But that this is a consequence of choosing to be an enemy of God. That's helpful. Scripture is offering the apostles this prophetic guidance into the kind of responses to situations that are in line with God's will. So why is this something to remember? And in fact, what amongst all of that is something to remember? Well, there are kind of two things, but I think one kind of lies behind the other. Up front, Scripture is there to offer us guidance. Guidance into the kinds of responses God is calling us to make when we are faced with any given situation. Peter is prayerfully interpreting the Psalms here. He's allowing them to speak into his current situation and the current situation that the believers find themselves in and allowing them to inform their decision-making process. But the truth behind that is that God inspires these words that guided Peter more than 500 years before this account in Acts. It may even be more than 1,500 years before this account in Acts. And do you know what that tells us? Do you know what that tells us about this? That God knows what he's doing. And rather comfortingly, then it, when it looks like everything has gone to pot, that the plans are screwed up because one individual is significantly instrumental in the death of the Son of God, we can actually be confident that God knows what he's doing and that behind that, the kingdom of God is not in trouble. What does this mean? And perhaps more helpfully, what does this look like? My wife loves to reread the same book over and over and over again. She has read Jane Eyre more than 20 times. I know that there are others of you out here who do the same thing, whether it's Harry Potter or the Chronicles of Narnia, whatever it might be. But I struggle with it. I mean, how do you not get bored But I am reliably informed that this practice of rereading stories is actually comforting. It's comforting to know the story because you know how it's going to end. Despite the twists and the turns, you know that things are going to turn out okay in the end. And if they don't, then you're prepared for that because you know that also. Now, we are in minefield territory right now. I mean, I am perilously close to preaching a sermon on predestination. 
whether we have free will or God determines everything that we do. And that is a place that I do not want to be today. But where I do want to be today is safe in the knowledge that God is the author of life. And that God knows the ending. And yes, again, this is an illustration and it has its limits. We don't know exactly what God knows about the rest of the story. That's why God is God and we are not. But God clearly knows a long, long time in advance the sorts of things that are significantly going to shape the story. And he knows that human sin is not going to stop the advance of the kingdom. The gates of hell will not prevail. And I believe that this truth is helpful for us to remember when we face new situations or new decisions that no matter what it looks like, no matter what we might be feeling on the inside, no matter how frightened we might be, no matter how much we feel like we have stuffed it up, the kingdom of God is not in trouble. Lastly, The end of this section in Acts sees all of the believers making this decision together on who should replace Judas as the 12th apostle. And I believe that this gives us something to recognize when we are facing new decisions. They've all agreed together that it is important to replace Judas with another who has seen the life of Jesus from baptism to his disappearance into the clouds. And this kind of makes sense. I mean, they were ultimately called as apostles. They were sent out to tell people about Jesus, to witness to his life, and to invite others to know more about who Jesus is, to invite others to know him. So they chose two people who fit the bill, two people who'd seen Jesus's life. They prayed together And they declared their dependence upon God in this decision-making. And then they cast lots. They wrote names on stones, and they put them in a pot, and they shook the pot until a stone came out. Now, if you think this sounds a little bit dodgy, you'd be forgiven. But the casting of lots was all about fairness. And it was actually about giving over control in decision-making to God. And it went on in the Old Testament for centuries. Should we cast lots for leadership today? Possibly. To those recounting votes for the election, I'm sure this currently looks like a pretty favorable option. But this is the last time in the New Testament that lot casting is kind of described. And it does precede the coming of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps we are now called to engage in Holy Spirit-inspired discernment when it comes to decision-making. But more on that next time. But the result here is that Matthias was elected. He was elected as Judas' replacement, the 12th apostle. But why is this important? Why were the early believers so concerned that there would be 12 apostles? 
And what do we recognize here? Well, let's take a quick look back at the account of the Last Supper in Luke. And the words of this are going to appear on the screen, so you don't need to hunt for that. We see these words from Jesus to the disciples. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you, which means I give you the keys to, a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging or leading the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the language of God's covenant with Israel. Now, here's a bit of backstory to this that I hope kind of frames this up and helps us understand it. In Exodus 24, which is right at the beginning of the Bible, and we're not going to turn there now, God invites all the leaders of Israel up a mountain. And here, God reveals himself to these leaders. And he confirms the covenant with them, the special relationship between God and his people. And there, Moses, who was leading the troop, offers covenant sacrifices on an altar made of 12 stone pillars. Now, these 12 pillars represent the 12 tribes of Israel, which in turn represent the whole of the people of God. This is the first covenant. The confirmation of God's relationship with God's people. And then they eat together in the presence of God. We fast forward to Luke. Jesus, God, is eating with the disciples and confirming the new covenant. Does it sound familiar? This is the renewed relational agreement God is making with his people. This is Jesus initiating the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. And in fancy words, this is covenantal parallelism. But more simply, this is Jesus restoring God's kingdom. He's bringing about the restoration of all things. The promise we can recognize and rely on when we face trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword is that God in his love is bringing about the restoration of all things. Well, what does this look like? I have a friend called Toby and I've asked him if I can share this story with you. When Toby was younger, he was involved in a bunch of pretty dodgy things. He used to organize illegal raves, which is dancing in a field, in case you don't know. He used to deal drugs, and he used to drive pretty heavily modified cars, rather illegally, around the streets of Great Britain. You get the picture. When Toby was 19, again on a gap year, he also went to South Africa. And there, on this trip, Toby and his girlfriend had a VW bus that was intent on introducing Toby to Jesus. Two hours outside of Cape Town, this bus broke down on the doorstep of a Christian discipleship center. 
And while they waited for a whole week for a new part for the bus, the leaders of this Christian discipleship center told Toby the gospel. They shared it with him. They showed him the gospel. And then they continued their trip. They spent six months traveling around South Africa. And on their journey, Toby was introduced to a pimp, another drug dealer, and even a hitman who had now all given their lives to Jesus. All because the bus kept breaking down at various points around South Africa. Six months later, At the end of their trip, Toby finds himself back at this Christian discipleship center, and Toby gives his life to Jesus. And because Toby now recognizes this very powerful way that God is a God of restoration, he has depended upon God to lead him through many new and unexpected situations. Toby has now been a youth pastor in a church. He's been on mission to Zimbabwe with his family. He's now married to the girl that he was in South Africa with. And Toby and I used to lead the Christian Union at university together. And last year he was my best man. God is bringing about the restoration of Toby And he has done a dramatic amount in his life already. And this passage invites us to recognize the reality that God has already begun the work of restoring all things. And he is inviting us to be involved with this, to break new ground, to face new thrilling and terrifying situations and to recognize that God is with us when we do it. Will we choose to join in when we face new, challenging, exciting, troubling mountains to climb? Will we choose to do something? Will we delight to dwell together in unity and in prayer? declaring our dependence upon this prayerful relationship with God that is oxygen for our living. We choose to remember that the kingdom of God is not in trouble. We take strength from knowing that God will not let human sin stop the advance of his kingdom. And will we recognize that we're being invited to join in this good and beautiful work of the restoration of all things? God is bringing about the restoration of all things, and he is calling us. He is calling you, and he is calling me to be involved. He's calling us to be involved in the advance of his kingdom. Will we join in? I invite you now to join me in prayer as I invite the band back up as well. Father God, we thank you that you are bringing about the restoration of all things and you've already begun. 
And Father, I, I praise you and take great comfort myself that the kingdom of God is not in trouble. And Father, I pray that you would inspire me and indeed us to be a people who choose to do something together, who choose to come together in unity and to pray. Father, I pray, even this evening, that we might recognize the power in that as we respond. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.